The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, when I was in high school, I studied for the HSC. The HSC. Well, that was the exam to end all exams. But how cruel to make us young people study exams. Exams should be for uni students, not like us young people who need to have fun. Ah, but when I got to university, that's when I had to do my medicine exams. Ah, they were the exams to end all exams. Our lives hung on the result of these exams. But how cruel to make us uni students study for exams. We've got our lives to live and we want to have fun. Exams should be for old people, not uni students. Oh, then when I did my PhD, I had to do my post-grad exams. Oh, they were the exams to end all exams. Our lives hung on the balance of these exams. But how cruel to make us old people study. Exams should be for young people, not old people. We've got leaky brains as old people. Uh, exams, we've all been there, we all did it, but why? What was the point of exams? What did we gain? Where was the joy? In other words, our question is this. Where is the meaning in our search for knowledge? Well, welcome to our February forum. In this month, we're doing a series of talks on the meaning of life, where we'll look at these questions. How can I find meaning in the daily grind, in the search for knowledge, in the pursuit of pleasure, and the drudgery of work? And what we do this month is week by week, one by one, we go through these questions and see what the Bible has to say, in particular a book called Ecclesiastes. And this will come in the form of a 20-minute talk from me, followed by some question and answer. And today is week two, question two in our series, how can I find meaning in the search for knowledge? And we can define the search for knowledge as this. It's us studying, learning, understanding ourselves the world around us, and the people around us. And in the Bible passage in front of us, in our outline, in that first chunk, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it says this, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced uh, much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learnt that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Wow, the Bible is groaning our groans, feeling our pain. It too is saying, what is the point in our search for knowledge? What do we gain? Where is the joy? Where is the meaning? In other words, our question is this, how can I find meaning in our search for knowledge. So in my talk, I've got two parts, which you can see in the outline in front of you. In the first part, uh, we'll look at problems with our search for knowledge, and in the second part, what we can do about this. So let's begin. First part of the talk, problems with our search for knowledge, and here I've got two things to say. Number one, we can't know everything. That's the first problem. There's too much to know. We can't know everything. When I was studying medicine at university, we had these big books to read, 
which we had to learn for the exams. And I found it really hard to study for the exams, so I relied on a skill which psychologists called short-term memory. And the way short-term memory works is this. You've got to keep as short a time as possible between when you read the book and you do the exam. And so when it's one month before the exam, don't study. Stay strong. Hold your fire. The others are panicking. They're going, but they're too young. They're too inexperienced. Let them go. One week before the exam, stay strong. Don't study. Hold your fire. The night before the exam, ah, that's when you do it. You read, 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 cram, 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 cram. Whatever's in the book in front of you, bam, 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 bam. You got to get it in there. And at night, don't don't sleep because if you sleep, it's gone. So stay up all night. And on the way to the exam, don't talk to anyone because if you talk, it leaks out of your mouth. So don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Just sit there and sit there at your desk. And when they say, start writing, oh. When you write, you write, 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 write. You jettison, you dump whatever's in here. Boom, 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 boom. You put down in a page in front of you, and it doesn't have to make sense. That's the examiner's job. Uh, that's what they're paid for. Don't do their job for them. I actually didn't do very well in medicine. I used to just scrape through uh, with a pass. But we had a saying in medicine: fifty-one percent is one percent wasted. You're just being inefficient. You just need fifty percent to pass. But with all our study, we have all realised this. There's just too much to know. How can we know everything? There's just too much to know. And in this room, we've all studied, we've all read, we're very learned, we've done our exams. But how many of us can still solve for an X? How many of us can remember the dates of the Franco-Prussian War? How many of us can remember the nuances of the relationship between Hamlet and his friend Horatio? We've forgotten everything, which is amazing because we studied so hard Our parents paid so much for our education. For many of us, our parents changed countries for our education. And what do we have to show for it? Boom. It's gone. There's too much to know. We can't know everything. Now, one day a week, I work as a doctor. And I work as a special sort of doctor called a surgical assistant. And you go, what is a surgical assistant? Well, if you went for an elective operation, afterwards you get three bills from three doctors... First bill comes from the surgeon. You go, yep, yep, the surgeon, fair enough. Second bill, the anaesthetist. Okay, yep, they kept me asleep. Okay. And the third bill is, you think, who is this bozo sending me a third bill? Well, that's me, the surgical assistant. So my most important job is just before you fall asleep, I have to say, hi, my name is Sam. I'm the surgical assistant. And you'll be getting a bill from me in two weeks' time before you drift off to sleep. Now, uh... Doctors, they study very hard, they work very hard, they put many years in at university, and then they specialise, which is another five or ten years of study. Most specialists don't set up practice until they're well into their 40s, so they've done a lot of work, they've done a lot of study. But here's the thing, all specialisation means is this, there's too much to know, so I'm just going to find a really small area, like the big toe, and this is what I'm going to know everything about. My friend is an orthopaedic surgeon, but he specialises in knees. And so I had a sore ankle, and I went to see him about my ankle. And he said, nah, sorry, I don't do ankles. I thought, you are kidding me. They're just next to each other. Surely they're very similar. And and that's what orthopaedic surgeons do. Orthopaedic surgeons specialise in bone. So they might pick a joint. Can you see that? I can't see it. It should be an elbow. 
Oh, it is Sue. There it is. There's an elbow there. All right. And all the surgeons do specialise in the bone bit, the nerves, the arteries, the skin, the muscle. That's someone else especially. They just do the bone in the elbow, one joint, two bones. That's what specialisation is about. You know everything about nothing because there's too much to know. And it's the same. In this room, I'm sensing the smartness, the intelligence, the cumulative knowledge here. We've all studied university degrees, post-grad qualifications, research, publication, titles, respect. I'm sensing all of this. We know everything about our field. We're specialists. But if we get home and the tap is dripping, we have to call a plumber. We don't know how to fix that. If the engine warning light comes on in our car, oh, we have to see a mechanic. We don't have to fix that. If our computer crashes, well, now we have to ring up our 10-year-old nephew because we don't know how to fix that. So no matter how much we read, studied, learnt or know, outside of our area, we don't know more than a 10-year-old would know. In fact, a 10-year-old knows more than what we know. So that's the first problem. We can't know everything. The second problem is this. What is wise today will be foolish tomorrow. There's a very famous book, Thomas Kuhn, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, came out in the 1960s, University of Chicago, and this is the book, the author, that coined the phrase paradigm shift. So this is where it originated, this book. And Thomas Kuhn argues convincingly that we actually don't get smarter, we don't accumulate more and more knowledge, all we do is we change Paradigms. We have paradigm shifts. It's not like we accumulate more knowledge. All it is is we change the buckets that we put the knowledge in. We change the models that we use to interpret the information. We change the lenses through which we view the scientific data. So once we believed in the ether, then we had a paradigm shift. Then we believed in Newton's physics, and then we had a paradigm shift. We don't now. Then we believe in Einstein's physics. And that's our new paradigm. But all that means is we're just maybe a decade away from another paradigm shift, and suddenly what we believe now won't be what we believe tomorrow. What is wise today will be foolish tomorrow. I came out as a doctor just over 20 years ago, and I was taught this as a doctor, uh, that stomach ulcers are caused by an imbalance of acid. Too much acid. So you treat stomach ulcers by giving antacids, and in severe cases, you actually have to cut the nerve with surgery, open surgery, that supplies the stomach, that causes the acid to come out, and you actually take out one-third of the stomach. That's the operation that was done to my dad. Now, only a few years ago, they discovered that stomach ulcers are caused by bacteria, which you guys all know. But when they first suggested this, it was laughed out of medicine. But now we've had a paradigm shift, and this is what we now believe. So what was once wise medicine, uh, antacids cutting out stomachs, is now seen as foolish medicine. What is wise today will one day be foolish tomorrow. So in this sense, what do we gain? Because we can't know everything, and what we do know might not be what we know tomorrow, and it might be foolishness tomorrow. And this is what the Bible passage says. In the middle section, it says this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. Yes, the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. So it should be better if we're wise rather than foolish. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. 
then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. In this sense, uh, we have the problem of death, which we'll look at a bit later in one of the other talks. But in this sense, what do we gain by being wise? Because even if you're wise, we can't know everything. So we're, in this sense, we're just as dumb as the fool. And what is wise today will be only foolish tomorrow. So we don't gain anything. We are just like the fool, no matter how much we learn. So that's the problem with our search for knowledge. So what can we do about this? So this brings me to the second part of the talk. And here I suggest two things. What we can do, number one, chill. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to know everything. Now, as you might know, I have three boys, Toby, Cooper and Jonty, aged eight, six and four. And one day they came to me and they said, Dad, is it true you know everything? And I said, yes, sons, it's true. I know everything. And they were so excited. So one of them said, well, Dad, tell us, how many spiders are there in Australia? And I went, oh, I don't know. And they went, oh, Dad, we thought you knew everything. And then one of my sons, who was so cute, said, I can't wait till I'm five. And I said, why can't you wait till you're five? He said, because when I'm five, I will know everything. And, you know, there's a childlike innocence there to think we can know everything. Because now as grown-ups, we know that's naive. We can't know everything. But rather than let that worry us, Maybe that's something we can celebrate. Maybe it's okay not to know everything, and we should celebrate that. You know, in the history of philosophy, there have always been two schools of thought. One camp are the skeptics, and they say, you know what, we can't know anything, can't know anything, can't know anything. But the other camp are the foundationalists, and they say, you know, we can know everything with 100% certainty. So one example is a guy called René Descartes from the 1600s, and he said, it's, what we know is like a pyramid. All we know, have to do is get our bottom layer, our foundational layer of knowledge that we know for sure, and from that we can build everything on that, and we can know everything with 100% certainty. But then people came back to Descartes and say, well, where are you going to get this foundational layer from? And suddenly realised we have no foundational layer, and so now we're back to the sceptics. We can't know anything for sure. But let me suggest a third alternative, not the sceptics, not Descartes, How about a third alternative where we can have adequate knowledge with adequate certainty of the things we do need to know for life, and then you're going to say to me, ah, yeah, but where do you get that bottom layer, that bedrock foundation of knowledge? And I say, it's all right, chill, as long as we know someone who knows that layer, and then we can just trust and know that person and know and trust them to guide us in life. As long as someone knows that bottom layer, we're okay. But of course, you're going to say to me now, well, who is this person? Show me the person we can know and trust to give us that bottom layer of knowledge so that we can adequate knowledge with adequate certainty of the things we need to know for life. I recently took my wife to see Star Wars uh, on the big screen in the movies. And because we're not recording this, let me just share, she felt 
asleep three times in the movie, to my horror. Uh, but, you know, I, let me also confess, I just saw Fast and Furious 7 and I also fell asleep. So uh, we, we both fall asleep in movies. Uh, now, when we saw, went to see the movie, it was surrounded by Star Wars geeks. And the Star Wars geeks, they live in a world where the Millennium Falcon is real, Jedi Knights are real, lightsabers are real, and we sort of think, okay, what well, we think is fantasy, they think is real. But hang on, isn't that a little bit smug, condescending and patronising to call their world fantasy? Because someone else could call what we know fantasy. How do we know what is real and what is fantasy? Because if paradigm shifts happen all the time, when the next paradigm shift happens, what we think is wise will be foolish. What we think is real will be fantasy. This is our problem. How, If we can't know everything, how can we know who can give us that bottom layer of truth that we can trust and who can tell us what is real and what is fantasy? And this brings me to the second point then. What we can do, number two, worship and know the God who does know everything. And this is what the final uh, section of the Bible says for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, of making many books, there is no end. That's too much. It's overwhelming. And much study. Where is the body? That's the problem that we set up in the first half of the talk. So what's the solution? This is my second point. Now that all things have been heard, here is a conclusion. Here is the solution. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So what can we do about this? Know and love the God of this universe who does know everything. And based on that, we can have adequate knowledge with adequate certainty of the things we need for life. I went to a private high school in Sydney where it was compulsory to be in the cadets unless you got into the orchestra. And like all the other Asian kids, I got into the orchestra. And this was my instrument in the orchestra, the triangle. And it was such a small part. Often, I'd only have to play the thing once in a whole symphony. And, and they'll give you like this 100-bar rest. So that my whole job then is to count one two, three, four, uh, and then ding, play my part. So my part wasn't the trumpet. It wasn't one of those glam instruments like the violin or the cello. My part was the triangle. I just had to know it and play it well. But there's a conductor, and the conductor's job is to know everything. They've got all the music in front of them. They know all the parts of the different instruments, and they conduct. That's what they have to do. Now, my job wasn't to be, to be the conductor, and that was very liberating, very relaxing. That's their role. But my job then is to play my part, to be in tune, in time, and in rhythm with the conductor, and to play my part well. And to same with our search for knowledge. We can be arrogant enough to think that we need to know everything, that we need to be the conductors, But it comes down to this. If there is a God of this universe, if there's a conductor of this universe, a loving, warm, personal God, then all we have to do is is to be in tune, in time, in rhythm with this God, 
to know him, to love him, to worship him, and to play the part he's given us and to play it well. To remember our original question, it was this. How can I find meaning in our search for knowledge? It comes down to this question. This is what it comes down to. Is there a conductor of this universe? Because if there's no conductor, then our search for knowledge really is futile. What do we gain? I mean, there's too much to know. And what we do know now would just be foolishness tomorrow. And how do I know what is real and what is fantasy? One man's reality is another man's fantasy. How can I know? This is futile. This is meaningless. But if there is a conductor, then all we have to do is let him conduct, play our part, know him, love him, worship him, and be in time, in rhythm, and in tune with his God. In medicine, there are specialties. And there's a hierarchy of arrogance when it comes to specialties. So you have your normal specialists, and the surgeons are more arrogant, and then the subspecialty surgeons are more arrogant. So most people say the orthopedic surgeons, they're the most arrogant. But because I work in the field of orthopedics, let me just say the neurosurgeons are the most arrogant. They are the -the off-the-charts arrogant doctors. And so we have a running joke in medicine, and it goes like this. You know, there was a nurse who had to work with neurosurgeons. And when she died, she got into heaven. So the first question she asked the angels in heaven is this, are there going to be any neurosurgeons in heaven? And they reassured, no, 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 no. The neurosurgeons never get in. There will be no neurosurgeons in heaven. And she goes, whew, this really is heaven. So she's walking around, enjoying herself in heaven, enjoying the sights, and Suddenly she sees what looks like a neurosurgeon. It's a guy in blue scrubs with a suitcase and the brain drill walking around. And so she gets one of the angels and says, what's going on? I just saw a neurosurgeon. I thought you said there were no neurosurgeons in heaven. And the angel goes, ah, that's not a neurosurgeon. That's just God. Every now and then God likes to dress up and pretend he's a neurosurgeon. And of course that's a joke. Some of us are so arrogant to believe that God wishes he were us. Of course God doesn't wish he were us. But then we shouldn't wish we were God. But if we think we can know everything in this universe, then we are playing God. Only God can know everything. How can I find meaning in our search for knowledge? Basically, we have two choices. Choice number one, I need to know everything and I can know everything. And I don't need to listen to what anyone else tells me because I am right Now, of course, we know how childlike that sounds, how naive it sounds at best, but really, at worst, it's smug, arrogant, judgmental, and self-righteous. Or we have choice number two. You know what? There really is a loving, personal, warm God behind this universe. He loves me. He made me. He conducts his universe. He knows everything. I don't need to know everything. I just need to know him love him, worship him, just know the bits that he's given me to know, play my part well, be in tune, be in rhythm, be in time this God. So how can I find meaning in our search for knowledge? It comes down to this. Can we humble ourselves to say, I can't know everything, and then to know and love and worship the God who does know everything? How can I know that God knows everything? Wow, how can I know that God knows everything? Wow, that's such a metaphysical question. That's like, how do I know 
oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't well, mean to stump the teacher. Things, by definition, God, God does know everything. Like, if, if we begin from nothing, then he makes the universe and he makes us. Then I guess almost, it's one of those by definition questions. So how do I know a triangle has three sides sort of thing? So maybe I might leave it at that. And okay. That, and we can explore that a bit later. Maybe the other questions will fill that out. Okay, no worries. Yeah. Okay, well, because actually... But what's then... interesting, maybe, maybe I'll just... In the history oh, you, you of go thought, for it. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah, history yeah. of thought, it went yeah. like this. In the history of thought, in the Middle Ages, we, uh, which we called the Dark Ages, but now you're going to realise how colonialist and patronising that term is because it was the Enlightenment that called the Middle Ages the Dark Ages... All right, so in the, in the Middle Ages, the idea was God does know everything, and rather than that being a disincentive for us to try to study the world, it was an incentive, because if God knows everything, and God is a revealing, talking, speaking God, we actually have access to knowledge. Of course, we can't end up knowing everything, but it's like what I was saying, we can play our part well and know the bits we need to know very well. So that became the incentive, and that's when universities flourished, uh, because this idea that God knows everything, and because God is logical and systematized, we can know things well as well. It's not like, okay, skepticism, we can know. Then you have the age of modernity that say, you know what, um, it's up to me to know everything. So, I, so that was Rene Descartes, I need to lay down my own foundations. And that's when we realize, well, actually, we're so subjective, we have no objective access to knowledge. So that's led to the age of postmodernity, where, you know what, no one knows anything. Uh, so you have your truth, I have my truth. But once upon in that time in the history of thought, there, there, it was the presumption that because God knows everything, then we can have adequate knowledge of the things we do need to know, and that's why universities flourished during that time. Okay, yep. there you go. And if people also want to, you'll be around afterwards yeah, if sure. people need to kind of flesh that out anymore. This is a, there was a similar question from this morning, but um, I like the way this one was really phrased. If God knows everything, and I can't, and and what I will know will change. Why should I even bother trying? Should yes. I just stop trying and be happy in ignorance? Yes, yes, yes. So there are two extremes. Uh, so it's like Goldilocks. You're going to be too hot, too cold. So we're looking for that Goldilocks just right thing. So there are two extremes. You know what? I can't know anything, so I'm just going to give up. And that's passivism. Or I can know everything, so that's activism. But we just need this middle spot in the middle. And a metaphor that my PhD supervisor, Graham Cole, once shared with me, he said it's basically like, is life a raft where we just sit back and let God do everything? You know, I can't do anything, I can't know anything, God's in control, so I'll just let him do everything and know everything. Or is life like a rowboat where i got to do all the work, but, you know, this is hard work, I can't do everything by myself. Or is life like a sailboat where my job is to steer, I've still got responsibility and accountability, but God, God sends the wind and he, he blows, he gives the power behind what I do. So when it comes to our quest for knowledge, same thing, we can go anti-intellectualism, which is what unfortunately some Christian movements might do, like, you know, really God knows anything, why do I need to know anything? Or we can go activist, you know, I don't need God, I can know everything, which is, I guess, what I've been arguing against today. And I hope we don't go the opposite where we go anti-intellectual. But we've got that middle bit where, you know what, God's given a bit here for me to know and to know well. So it's a bit like I had my triangle bit and I had to play it well. It wasn't like, oh, it's just a triangle now. It's not a trumpet. It's not a trombone. No, I still had been time. So God gives us a field to know. So a great metaphor uh, comes in the part of the Bible where it talks about God putting the original humans, Adam and Eve, in a garden and he told them to work it and to work it well and glorify God in the way they work the garden. So he didn't tell them to work the, the universe. No, just work the bit I've given you and to do it well. And to work a garden, 
It's an expression of creativity. You need to know learning and wisdom. You bring order out of chaos, beauty where there was no beauty, and logic where there was once no logic. And just to bring that well, so in in the fields of arts, science, and music, you you can see us imaging God by playing our part and working our part of the garden. Now, does anybody have any questions, anything they want to push back or put up your hand and clarify? Please feel free to do so. You know, this, this isn't just a one-point mm. one conversation. Now, I do apologize. This actually came early in the talk, so I should have probably given you this mm. first, but that other question I just thought would be fun to throw at you first. But um, this is kind of when your science bit. So then, wh- why then do people put their faith in science yeah. if there seem to be regular paradigm shifts in the study of science? Wow. You, you know what? Because the, the when I studied medicine... It's funny, you know, there are two fields of study, science and the humanities. In science, we're just told to memorise and turn up and regurgitate, and they're all multi-choice uh, questions. So at no stage does someone ask, what is medicine? <laughs> what is a disease? Really, what is a disease? It's just a variation of norm, and what, what gives you the right to say that person's disease and you're normal when it could be the other way around? Which reality are you living in? You know, and we don't ask those questions in medicine, and someone said, did you do ethics when you started medicine? I go, no, you didn't. So all these things you assume doctors study. No, we just study anatomy, bones and cells. We don't ask those metaphysical questions. But in the humanities, they do. They ask, what is a doctor? What is a disease? What is a number? Show me a number. Where are these numbers? And that's what's happening with the scientists. Scientists actually just learn. It's all about experiments and journals. And it's in the humanities and sociology that, and soft sciences people go, what is science? Where are these paradigms? And I think that's, that's what happens. So most scientists haven't been exposed to, to the critiques of science, just like doctors haven't been exposed to critiques of medicine, and often it comes out of medicine. But, but, but it, yeah, so we can explore more of that. Because I go to scientists and go, are, are you aware of paradigm shifts and, and just how socially bound you are and your observations? They go, no, no, no. I just did a multi-choice exam, you know, for my master's, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, because actually the follow-on mm. question to that is then, is the knowledge of God ever changing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So is the knowledge of God ever changing? We can say yes, because it could be like science. We have paradigm shifts. We're culturally bound. We're all subjective in the way we interpret our data. So what I will say is this. We all seem to have a God search, and it comes through different ways. So sometimes it comes through a search for truth, maybe a search for meaning, a search for beauty, a search for knowledge. But there seems to be a God consciousness. We're always sensing there's something transcendent more than what I can see and touch. There must be a God behind this universe. But then we, we're left by our, to our own devices to blindly search for God. And we are trapped in our paradigms, in our cultural uh, locatedness, and our own subjective interpretations of the data. So someone pointed out we will forever be lost unless God then speaks. See, God then has some moment has to say, okay, this is who I am, this is my name, and this is how you can know me and worship me. And I guess that's what the Bible argues for. We, we begin in a God search. There must be someone who's looking after me, uh, who's behind truth, beauty, and morality, and at some stage God speaks. So an example is Paul who's an original follower of Christ, he's speaking in, in a temple where he says, I love how you guys are searching for God and trying to worship God in your own way. And you've even got a ta- an idol set up that says, to the God with no name, 
Well, how about I now come and tell you God's name? So at some stage, God actually has to say, okay, this is who I am. This is my name. And so a big claim of the Christian Bible is at some stage, God speaks. He sends Jesus to say, this is who I am. My name is Jesus. If you want to know God, love God, worship God, it's through Jesus. Uh, and so in that sense, we don't have to search anymore. And God isn't some metaphysical, abstract thing. He's a real God. He's a personal God. And the only way we can know people is if the other person speaks and reveals their name. Otherwise, we're forever searching and hunting blindly. And the same would be for us. We're forever searching blindly for God unless God actually speaks. And that's a big claim of the, the Christian Bible and the Christian God, that God's not just living, he's not just saving, but he's a speaking God. And so that's how we know we don't have to be blind or trapped in our subjective interpretations. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.